I'm Russ Boris, and this is 8-Track. Our guest today is record executive, musician, and author who's recently released his memoir, My Life in the Sunshine. Happy welcome, Nabil Ayers, to the show. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, we'll, we'll talk a lot about the memoir. This is such an interesting story. But I wanted to start, obviously, while you're here, to be the DJ. And we have eight songs that you've chosen that seem to center around a specific place and period of time. So tell me about why you've kind of centered around the early MTV days. Yeah, I mean, this was just a really important musical time for me. I mean, this was, for me, around 1982, my mother and I had just moved from New York City to Salt Lake City for her job. And at the time, I was 10 years old and really concerned that I'd already was super into music, bought a bunch of records that, you know, seen a lot of bands and, and played drums. And I thought, well, we're moving to Salt Lake City. It's over. I'm never going to see live music, never going to hear cool music. And I was so surprised that not only was that not true and every band played there, but that's right when MTV started or it's right when we got it started in 81. So suddenly I heard all this music that really changed my life, you know, at a time when it was, I think I was very open to that. So it ended up being a great time and a great place. And, and a lot of these songs really, I think, kind of influenced my taste forever. It's incredible when you think about your certain age and your perception of how life is going or is going to go when change comes about. Yeah. So the notion of like, I'm leaving New York City and I'm going, where am I going? And my <laughs> right. whole life is going to suck. Everything's going to go wrong now. Yeah. And it, it really, I mean, I, I love New York and still live here now and then used to visit a lot even then. But I was so surprised at really how great Salt Lake was as a as a place for me to see more and hear more music. It surprised me. So as the musical awakening was really in full bloom at that time, um, mm -hmm. you know, why are we starting with Bow Wow Wow first? What is about this song called Baby Oh No? I think there's, and it's funny because this wasn't the big single. The big MTV single was, of course, I Want Candy. But I remember a video for Baby Oh No that was on MTV all the time. And to me, I think that was, it was more of a rock song. It's more of a straight ahead song. And they don't have a lot of songs like this. And I, I love Bow Wow Wow. But there's something about this song that was very driving and rock. And I remember the video with, with Annabella and I think the guitarist on a motorcycle. It just felt very, like, rock to me. He's a man I never I like how it sounds almost like a different band, really. It does, right? Um, it's unusual for them. Yeah, because yeah. everybody's association for the most part is, is I Want Candy, and they're just going to, you know, it's such an explosive, you know, pop song and, and very iconic for the time. But yeah, there's a different vibe there. surf thing in there and there's a little bit of like a 50s vibe yeah definitely it still has the tribal drums which are the, the kind of the signature for me as a drummer someone who grew up you know really loving that drummer there's a funny thing speaking of how culturally relevant salt lake turned out to be um i saw them on my last day of sixth grade they played the university of utah it was like the big like end of year party and I think Annabella the singer must have been maybe she was 15 at that time maybe 16 but probably not and we used to my mom and I used to like go hang out outside of tons of shows and meet every band it was super easy to do in Salt Lake and we were doing that there and they came walking by at both my mother and I and she was never scared of anything 
both just stood there like we didn't know what to do. These really cool people with mohawks, one of which was a teenager, just like walked right by us and we just like stood there silently like in awe. You make me That's amazing how the, you know, the musical connection started so early for you. And at what age did you pick up drums? I think, I mean, my uncle bought me a drum set when I was two and a half. And that was like an actual drum set. And he, he did that not to get me started playing music, but to kind of continue my obvious interest. I think I'd been playing on pots and pans and, and a sort of calfskin African drum that a friend had given me when I was a baby. So really, always. That's incredible to start at such an early age. Yeah. Um, at what point did it start to make sense for you, though? Would you feel like, oh, yeah, I'm actually making something that sounds like music? I think weirdly, I mean, there there's tapes and a lot of photos of me and my uncle playing together when I'm almost four and he's in his early 20s. And we're playing like the Sesame Street theme and the Rocky theme and some songs of his. And I, mean, I can listen to those now and they make sense. And I, and I can tell that I knew what I was doing. There was there was a rhythm and there was, you know, <laughs> I knew the songs. It's really crazy. And it's pretty amazing that you would go to shows and, and it just speaks to sort of like a bold upbringing that you had when you're like, I'm I'm going to go meet these guys. Like, I'm not just right, going right. to go to the show. I'm going to go hang out. Like, I don't have any fear of that. Yeah. My mother would just walk up to them and say, my son's a drummer. He wants to meet you. And and we would. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Yeah. All right. So we've got, uh, we transitioned to our next pick here where we've got, um, you know, pretty iconic band of the age. And um, I mean, if you think of a John Hughes film, you definitely think of the psychedelic furs. Right. Uh, so why do you hone in on Love My Way? This one, this is funny, this also connects to my uncle who's a saxophone player. Um, I mean, this video was on MTV all the time. I can totally see the band like kind of playing on this watery cloud set. And I remember seeing the video and my uncle calling me one day and saying, you know, this band just called me. He was a jazz, is a jazz saxophone player who kind of played rock in the 80s. And he called me and said, you know, this band just called me. Have you ever heard of them? They're called the Psychedelic Furs. And I was like, of course, they're on MTV. They're the biggest band in the world because that's what I thought everyone on MTV was. And he said, uh, yeah, I'm going on tour with them starting tomorrow. Their, their saxophone player is a friend of mine. He has visa problems getting in from the UK, so I'm replacing them. And <laughs> he jumped onto this tour. And I actually met up with them in sixth grade in Pasadena at Perkins Palace and, uh, and was backstage hanging out, met all of them, got to watch from the side of the stage. this stuff as a 10 year old in Salt Lake again where I was worried about missing concerts and music and suddenly just being like in these incredibly lucky positions so I was waiting for an example of when the musician hat would come on for you and then you would start to you know air drum or something along those lines so you, you'd play along with that so like how often do you find yourself doing that especially when you listen to songs like this every day i find myself air drumming every single day and, and my wife finds me doing it and all my friends do it's just 
I think it'll always be there. And especially now, I don't really play drums. I live in New York and don't have a drum set here, so I do out of town occasionally with friends, but it's all air drums these days, and it definitely came out in that song. Is is that weird? You know, because you're not in that world the way you were at one point in time. Right. It It is weird, and I miss it a lot, but I always remind myself all the stuff I didn't like about being in a band, which was practice and waiting and carrying gear, and it's a long list of things, and then... And then I think about my job running a record company and getting to work with so many great artists and that a lot of what I did love about playing in a band was, of course, the playing part, but like the satisfaction of when things go well or when someone gets something they want, I still get to experience a lot of that in my job. And so weirdly, of course, I wish I could play drums every day, but it's not, I'm not at zero. I'm maybe at like 50 or 60% with work and air drumming. (laughs) And there's a long road that takes you from, you know, two and a half and having a drum kit and getting to a record executive and right um you know and then of course writing the memoir right now and we certainly need to talk about that and just in the memoir itself what i'm most curious about is it's not about any one thing it's as you look back at your own life and you say you know i think i'll share this to the extent that you do right i mean again i think that goes back to sort of the bold upbringing no fear. Like I'm, I can put myself out there in this way. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm scared. <laughs> yeah, but There's not no fear. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't come off like there was hesitation there. Right. Boy, and it doesn't come off as though, Hey, my story is more interesting than anybody else. You got to hear about my world. It's like, no, right. there's a legitimate story here and you're, you're willing to share it because it goes, it branches in so many directions. Thanks. I'm, I'm glad you took it that way. I and mean, that really is what it's meant to be. It's not, certainly not an advice book or, or you know, it's, it's my story and it was, really fun to tell and it's sometimes difficult to tell but it's been really cool and exciting to do and it's it's fun it's so connected to music which is why it's fun to come here and talk about these things um and in a way it it also has replaced being in a band i mean it's very much a creative outlet and i the the analogy i keep making is that when i was writing short articles those were singles and this book is my album and the sort of promotion cycle feels very much like it did when I was in a band. It's, it's really a lot closer than I thought it would be. There is no way that you could not have been tied to the music business. You know, right. there's just no way. Like in, in the way that you talk and the way that you go about everything, it's like there was your connection from the moment you were born. That's funny. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we'll go to the next one here. Uh, we've got Eddie Grant's Electric Avenue. Huge song from the 80s. Yeah. I don't know that anybody doesn't know this song or doesn't love this song. Uh, but why? Why this one? Such a great tune. This one for me was interesting. I mean, my father's black and my mother's white. So I'm a biracial kid. And that was never a thing in my life living in Amherst in New York City in these places I lived until I was 10 years old. But then when we moved to Salt Lake, it absolutely was a thing not in a bad way I think I was more afraid that it would be bad but it wasn't but still I certainly stood out more and I was different and I'd never felt like that before in my life and as much as I loved MTV MTV was super white and so I would watch most of these artists a lot of which we're talking about today and certainly never identified with them never thought oh I could do that or I could be in that band And I didn't actually feel that way about Eddie, but what was fascinating, I remember this, and I write the story in the book, he was on a live interview once with MTV, and I don't think I thought about it till I saw this interview, and the host said, Eddie, what do you think about MTV? Like, in a very arrogant way, like, basically saying, like, we've made your career, would you like to thank us? That's what it looked like. And he said, I think you should turn that M over and make it a W for white TV. Nice. (laughs) And it was pretty intense. And I think at that moment, I thought, like, oh, weird, huh? 
Right. It is all white artists that they play in. And since then, there's a, there's a great video of David Bowie yeah. around then really giving it to them, like straight up saying, why don't you play more black artists? I'm glad that you mentioned that. He's straight up hammering Mark Goodman, who has to tow the company line. Mm-hmm. Like, well, we're trying. <laughs> yeah. And Bowie's like, no, you know, yeah. he's not having it. It's it's pretty amazing. I'm glad you mentioned that. Electric Avenue. So this was really not only one of the few black artists that they played, but certainly one that that spoke out as directly as you possibly could about it. Nabil, do you know anything else about um, Eddie's career? Any other song? Because I feel like that's the song everybody knows, and I don't know if anybody knows another song. I know nothing, no. And I, and I feel like there's a weird thing where, it, where that's not the album version, that's a re-record, and you can't find the original. That might be it, it correct. It definitely sounds different. And do you happen to know if there is an actual Electric Avenue? <laughs> I don't know, but I would like to rock down to it. <laughs> right. Every town should have their version of an Electric Avenue. Yeah. It's probably Main Street or something yeah, like that. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, we're here on A-Track. Nabil Ayers is our guest, and we're talking about uh, sort of the early musical awakening at uh, MTV in 1982, and a list of songs that kind of runs this thread together. And of course, Nabil also has a new memoir out called My Life in the Sunshine, uh, which is all about his life story, which is super, super interesting. And did you have to give a 30-second pitch to anybody to try to go, like, here's here's where I'm going with this? I can you try. Had I mean, it's hard. I'm still not good at it because, as you said, the book's not about any one thing. So it, yeah. it, <laughs> the 30-second pitch is hard. I mean, I tell people that it's about my relationship with my father, Roy Ayers, who's a jazz musician who I've never known. When my mother was 21, she decided she wanted to have his child and that he wouldn't need to be involved. So he agreed. There was no divorce. He never left us. But it's all about my life not living with him, but kind of in his shadow because his music was always present. And we've met a few times and had a much longer meeting when I was an adult and have now connected with tons more family. Um, so I guess it's about my non-relationship with him more than my relationship. But it's uh, it's tons of music and family. And it was fun to write. There are so many you know, great little nuggets in there um, to read, including there was one where you're talking about how I think you were in Amherst at the time and, and it was, you know, some of the neighborhood children didn't have, um, you know, father figures or fathers mm-hmm. in, in the house. And uh, you, you sort of described the father as, as like a unicorn. Right. You know, we had heard about them and nobody actually had seen one or had an experience. Yeah, with one. it was like a legend. Yeah. My first 10 years were, were so great and important because the situation I just described, I mean, you know, being a half black kid with a white mother on welfare who was had me when she was 22 does not sound great on paper. But my life was incredible during those years. And, and a lot of that was because we lived in places where a lot of people were in similar situations, like really, you know, tons of different racial backgrounds, lots of single parents, lots of parents in college and kind of figuring out what to do with their lives. And, and my mom was great about always putting us in safe, supportive environments and made it work. Yeah. You see where, you, you know, you've been able to go in different directions and different roads simply because, you know, there was never any any reason not to. Um, right. You know, you're always right. kind of open to that, and that's kind of what you learn. So that's that's pretty cool. 
Um, we, we go to Missing Persons now, which is a really prominent band early on, and I think doesn't quite get as much due as they should. Absolutely. I and mean, that's funny. There was just someone started a big Twitter thread about this recently, and it was just a bunch of music geeks talking about how incredible this band was. And I'm totally one of those geeks. And this was three members of Frank Zappa's band. Insane musicians, especially Terry Bozio, the drummer, who started this, you know, new wave pop band that tons of people write off as a one-hit wonder, but were just insane musicians and doing really cool stuff. Something feels so strange tonight. It's not wrong, but it's just not right. Some hidden complications fill me with hesitation. So why Windows in particular? Windows in particular because because to me it's like this this like almost like wistful mid-tempo pop song on the album but then it has this crazy drum solo in the middle that just comes out of nowhere and is so technical and weird and something you wouldn't hear in the middle of any kind of song. You wouldn't hear it in a metal song or you know it's just like it's really unique and somehow it totally fits and it's like I mean some of it I think I can visualize and there's a video of it that Terry's playing but it's like it's really beautiful, even though he's playing really hard and it's sort of aggressive. It's really, I think it's this really like beautiful drum solo in the middle of the song that takes me by surprise. I'm not surprised we got to one that was going to have a particular drum solo. So thanks for picking <laughs> this one. Got to have a drum solo. <laughs> not wrong about that solo it's insane right it just comes yeah. out of nowhere and it somehow fits in the song but it's so unusual it's not something you're prepared for right yeah <laughs> yeah it's very cool i love it that whole album's incredible yeah that's an underrated band as we were talking about that definitely is one i think gets a little bit glossed over and i think a lot of that you know in that decade i think is sort of dismissed um, mm-hmm. yes we do recognize that not everything from the 80s has aged well <laughs> from a production standpoint sure right it's not true of everything, but I mean, you look at some of the Springsteen records, for instance, like there's definitely an example of like, right. you know, Tunnel Love is a beautiful album, but production wise, it's mm-hmm. glossy. Right, right. There was a sound. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but we're all there. Like, everybody, right. if you lived through it, you knew what it was. Yeah. Um, now, you know, as we got into a lot of these sounds and some of the new wave bands and everything, you've also got a rock history to you that I think we haven't quite touched on just yet. So one of the early bands that you were into was Kiss. Yeah, and that changed everything for me. Is it just the makeup or like what opened the door first? I think so. I mean, I was I was raised around tons of jazz for my first, I guess, five years. My uncle's a jazz saxophone player. My dad's a jazz musician, even though he didn't raise me. You know, I, I knew about his music and we just were around a lot of that music. And that's a lot of the early music I saw live when I was a kid and I loved it. And then I got Kiss Destroyer and it just changed everything overnight. And I was five years old when I bought that record. And I remember seeing it in the store and just being like, that one, I, I need that. I mean, of course, at five, I'd really actually never heard anything like that. And so it just, but yeah, it was, it was the makeup, it was the presentation. Um, my mother took me to see them at Madison Square Garden when I was seven, and that was a whole nother thing. I mean, yeah, this is in the 70s. This was the explosions, and it actually felt scary, and there were people throwing fireworks. This is, it was terrifying, and it was one of the greatest moments of my life. Yeah. Did you dress as the cat for that night, or did that just came I later? Didn't. I didn't. I did other times. There's pictures of me sitting at my drum set as a kid, you know, with a lumpy afro and, and kiss makeup on, <laughs> playing along to the record, which is 
<laughs> really fun and, and cool of my mom to take the time to do that. She gets a lot of credit for that. Okay. I'm curious. So as an early Kiss fan mm-hmm. and as a drummer, right. where do you stand on Beth? <laughs> I mean, I usually skipped it then and I still skip it. It's just not. Oh, wow. It's a, okay. it's a good song. It's not that, it, but to me, it doesn't belong on that album. That's, that's, yeah. well, I guess there are a couple other songs, but it's mostly such a rock <laughs> album. And especially as a kid, I, yeah, it's, what's this? I don't need this. No offense. <laughs> okay. I have a soft spot for it, but I understand. No, nope, <laughs> nope. I understand. Totally are you a Beth apologist? Are you going <laughs> to, one of the probably. people? <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> All right. So we get to Kiss. And so I don't know, you know, where the roads lead, but, you know, there's an inroad to Motley Crue for sure. So you got Live Wire down here. Is that the beginning or is that just the one song that, you know, sticks out to you? That's, I mean, I became a pretty big Crew fan, definitely the first two albums, but I think, that, you know, this is definitely one where I saw the video and it was probably kind of like Kiss. All these new wave bands, you know, they had different hair than I did and I knew I'd never look like them, but they weren't scary to me. They were just foreign and really cool. I remember seeing the Live Wire video, which is, you know, just like a fake live video, just the band playing in a soundstage or something. And I remember being scared. And there was like a kiss element because they had some makeup, but not not full face makeup. But I just remember thinking, like, wow, this is so heavy and scary. What is this? And I love being scared by music. It's still one of my favorite emotions that connects with music. So... So when I saw this, I was just like, I don't know what this is or who these people are or where they're from, and I'm super into it. You know, as an adult, there's nothing scary about that song. In fact, yeah. there might not even be anything good about that song, but it, it just <laughs> reminds me of what it felt like, and it felt incredible at the time. And that's that's what's so cool about some music, is it's so attached to, to time and space. And was Tommy Lee a guy that opened up, you know, some other doors for you as a drummer, just you know, kind of looking things differently? Yeah, I'm a huge Tommy Lee fan, and I always have, and I still love the way he plays on that song. And there's really cool live versions of it. He's always, you know, not necessarily the best role model, but a great drummer. Now we talked a lot about the upbringing and and how you got to the memoir and everything, and we, we did leave out, you know, kind of pretty significant piece right now is what you're doing present day, you know, in the record business. So you mentioned being really excited about music that scares you. <laughs> you know, does that factor into what you do working at Beggars? It does. I mean, I, you know, I, I worked at 4AD for 13 years and, and now I'm in this role as the president of Beggars, which is great. And that just started a few months ago. Um, I mean, at 4AD, I wasn't the one that was out there signing bands, but certainly I was involved in the early stages and running the campaigns and everything. And there's definitely, that's a thing. I mean, I remember the first time I saw Aldous Harding feeling that same feeling. I mean, it doesn't have to be heavy or like metal music to be scary. It just has to be sort of emotionally weighty. And the first time I saw her at South by Southwest, it absolutely made me feel like that. Like, I'm like, I don't even know if I want to meet that person in a good way. Yeah, there's something when you see an artist who has a certain level of intensity, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. where it speaks to you in a way like, like you feel something in there yeah. and you're just... Oh, I'm drawn to this. I don't know what. It's a conviction or a yeah. belief, you know, that like I'm convinced that they believe so much in what they're doing that I have no choice but to follow that kind of feeling. Well, because you've also seen the other side, you know, yeah. between 
going to shows as an executive, but also playing shows and being out on the road, you know when they don't even buy what they're doing. <laughs> right. That's true. You know, yeah. They're in it for whatever reason they're in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you see something that's kind of the, the genuine article, it, it definitely stands out in a different way. Yeah. All right. So uh, we talked a lot, you know, as we're centered around this MTV, you know, birth in 82 obviously about the sonics of the time and the production and new wave bands and everything but we didn't really touch on you know the obvious which is you know the visual and the videos mm-hmm. this video is is next level for me okay <laughs> when we talk about journeys separate ways first of all the synths everything this is one of my favorite journey songs i love that you picked this yeah but the idea that a band would do air keyboards in a video and think <laughs> it looked cool. Blows my mind. They're all air playing, right? Like the director hits cut and he's like, hot damn, that was great. They're in like a warehouse, like industrial yeah. waterfront district air playing all of their instruments. And, and the funniest thing about it is like, you know, this album, it's the album after Escape. And Escape was, of course, the massive breakthrough of Don't Stop Believing and everything. So, so they were a huge rock band when this came out. So I don't... I don't know all the details, but my guess is they could do whatever they wanted and that there's <laughs> unlimited budget and ideas and directors and everything. And this is what we got for the first yeah. single from the new record. It is what I would call some creative creativity. Part of the journey thing for me is also keeps going back to being able to see music in Salt Lake. But when my mother and I moved to Salt Lake City from New York, before we moved, she worked for American Express and they actually flew us out there to just kind of check it out and go look at schools and look at neighborhoods. And we were there and the night before we left, Journey was playing at the arena across the street, the Salt Palace. And so we went and bought tickets and went to the show. tour and it was this really incredible and the show was great but like also like a really sort of big bonding moment I think with me and my mother we were standing there watching this band and just decided like let's just move here this is great we can walk across the street to a rock concert I'm happy I'm sure I'll get to see some music and it was true that is a sweet memory Listen to that song, and you're just ready to run through a wall. It's so over the top. <laughs> it's like Red Bull before there was Red Bull. It is. It's just like on 11 the whole time. It really is, and I think that's probably what the mindset was. Like, what could we do here right, that's right. going to match what this song is? Oh, I have it. We'll go in a warehouse, and we won't play our instruments. <laughs> It'll be super intense, and people will lose their minds. It's wild. <laughs> It's a good tune. But Perry sings the hell out of that one. Oh, yeah. I mean, that whole band is pretty incredible. And Neil Sean was in Santana's band when he was 16, right? The guitarist. That's something, something crazy like that. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the day. Well, anyway, thank you for that. That was a, that was a lovely uh, stroll down some, <laughs> some visual memory lane. I know. Uh, I know. In some different days of MTV. So very strange. <laughs> 
Nabila here since our guest here as we're talking about um, you know all these songs around you know 1982 MTV and and the influence it had on your musical development and you know you didn't really play music like this though right when you, you started bands I sure wanted to <laughs> yeah I mean I think I was always trying to start bands as a kid and you know knew other kids who played guitar and, and played instruments but obviously that just never worked and, and until I was in junior high that's when I finally connected with kids who could actually play and ended up in sort of a real band but that you know that was still like it was a punk band because eighth graders could play punk rock and so it was never I, I would have loved to have tried to be in some sort of technical missing persons meets journey meets motley crew band and uh when i was 10 years old but but that was just impossible but but yeah later once i got in bands i think it was kind of the drummer thing where in a good way i fell into the bands that i fell into and some of those bands did well or some were at least a ton of fun or led me to the next thing and i didn't i don't think i ever started a band and if i had it probably would have been different but i ended up in the bands i ended up in and had a great time it's amazing, I think, as you know, somebody who's not a musician, when you look at you know, people who are kind of lifers, that mm-hmm. you just jump into stuff that's like, I'll just play whatever. Because I think that there, there's, there's this idea that like, oh, I play this style of music, but like real musicians just play. Hmm. And if you're in a rock band or you're in a punk band or you're in a funk band, you're in an R&B, you know, whatever you're in, right, you're right. playing the music just because you love to play. So you'll just jump wherever. Yeah, and I think not that I was in that ver- sort of varying types of bands, but but you know, had this very strong base of free jazz as basically a baby, and then always knew my father's music, which which is considered jazz, but I think is a lot funkier and more, I don't know, less jazz than than people think it is. And then into all this MTV rock, and so by the time I was even ten, I think I'd just been exposed to so much more music than most ten year olds. Yeah, you know, one of the things that this um, you know this decade is so you know vastly associated with is is one hit wonders. Um, <laughs> I'd be hard pressed to not consider Romeo Void a, a one hit wonder, at least for me. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so tell me about uh, about Never Say Never and why you picked this song. I remember the video. This is the band just kind of playing it in you know a rehearsal space or something. And I think this was of, of all these bands who all look sort of outlandish in their own way and really done up whether it was Molly Crew looking crazy with hair and makeup or Missing Persons looking crazy with hair and makeup but Romeo Void were like it reminded me of New York where I'd lived right before then whether or not they're from New York to me they look like some like hardcore New Yorkers like they just look tough and like they're in a rock band And, you know, the singer, I forget her name, but didn't look like a super obvious rock star, but had this incredible persona and this great voice. And I just think that it's such a great song. And it sounds really, it really sounds like the city to me. It sounds really heavy and New York and rock. And I think that's what I liked about it as a kid who who still felt connected to that. As a little kid, that was one for me that was a little uncomfortable, like listening to the radio <laughs> with my mom in the room, you know? Right. A little risque. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't even necessarily know if I knew what it meant or, or why I was uncomfortable, but it felt uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it goes. That one stands up, I think, more than some of the others we've talked about. I think you're right. Yes. I do think you're right. And I think that's where, you know, that sort of 
you know, I think the decade as a whole gets painted in a negative light, and it's like, yeah, there's there's a lot of gems there that you can find, and um, you know, I think the influence of a lot of these is so wide ranging. There's so many bands now that still like go synth crazy and it's not right. they're not breaking out like the early 2000s synths they're you know <laughs> clearly you know still borrowing from you know 82 to 84 yeah, or whatever yeah. uh, so to, to put a little close on on the memoir itself you know, definitely you know encourage people to go you know check it out because it's a really interesting read what have you most learned I think about yourself more than anything as you look back on it and you read back on the the words that you've put to to paper or screen or however you know you you did it is yeah you know what what do you you take from it and say wow I feel this way now that you sort of reconciled all of it I think I think I already knew that I'm a pretty positive person but I think writing and then reading this book really confirmed that in me in a good way meaning that there's a lot of things in it that we were talking earlier about, you know, my situation as a kid with a young mother who was on welfare and all that and how that could have been a bad thing. But really, we had this incredible life and it was sort of always this glass half full and we were around great people and we were never worried about our lives. It, it, it improved. And um, and even some of, you know, whatever racial incidents that happened, whether I was owning a record store in high school in Salt Lake, those things I kind of let roll over me. And, and I think that was in a protective way. But looking back, I could have spent a lot more time focusing on those, but I don't know if it would have helped me in my life. And so I guess my point is really just that I've always focused on the positives and writing about it and looking at it through this several decades lens has helped me to realize, oh, wow, I guess actually I really am a pretty positive person. And I think, you know, the title, My Life in the Sunshine, as much as as it's a tribute to my father's song, it's the first lyrics in the song. um, It's just a really optimistic title. And that's what I like about it. Yeah, I think you definitely, you know, come away feeling positive from the read, for sure. Thanks. Thank you, Nabil. This has been a blast and a really fun conversation. I love Thank you. you. Yeah, it's been great. Doing the, the nostalgic trip. Um, not surprised. Your, your last pick has another pretty prominent drummer. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if that was necessarily the, you know, the rationale here, but tell me about Spirits in the Material World from The Police. So for my last song, this was actually, I was struggling between this and a Rush song, which I think for a lot of people ticks the same box. Both three pieces, both incredible drummers and all around incredible bands. But I think The Police for me was a little harder to figure out. I mean, I knew that everyone always thought Stuart Copeland was a great drummer, and he is, but it was always a bit more subtle to me, and especially on this album, Ghost in the Machine, which is, I think, a weirder, darker album than the other Police albums. this tour in Salt Lake in sixth grade. Again, another example of like, wow, Salt Lake's great. I'm, I'm watching this British band play and, and, you know, not that many people were there. Um, but I've always just loved this song. It's the first song on the album. I still can't quite figure out how I'm supposed to bob my head to it. It feels really weird to me and I like that it kind of confuses me and it, it challenges me, but it still has this great like poppy chorus.
Okay, it does look like you figured out some form of head bob there. There's, yeah, I can I can head bob in parts of it, but I can't head bob straight through the whole song. <laughs> it's very frustrating. You know, I think that's the Copeland, you know, side of things. And then mm-hmm. I, I early, you know, when I started doing radio, somebody was talking about editing, and they said like editing Sting's bass part is some sort of like otherworldly task, and that there's oh, something really? about it that's just yeah, it's like super difficult. Oh, or I've never heard that. I, I wasn't the one who'd done it, so like I, so I can't not, speak he's to not it. Perfect then. Well, you know, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Any other last words on Copeland? Uh, just that he's great, and that was, that was such a fun thing. As a, it was fun to play along with some of these records when I was a kid, and that was one that I always had a hard time playing along with, and I, I've always loved that about him. All right, Nabil, this is really fun, man. Thank you. This is great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. The Police and Spirits in the Material World, picked by Nabil Ayers here on 8-Track. Thanks to Nabil for the songs and stories and the great read with his memoir, My Life in the Sunshine. Next week, I'll be joined by two musical guest DJs whose memoir is now a TV show, Tegan and Sarah. 8-Track is engineered by Jim O'Hara and produced by Sarah Wardrop with theme music by Caroline Rose. Subscribe, listen, and learn more at 8trackpod.com. I'm Russ Boris for WFUV in New York.